Innovation and discovery have flourished at Carolina since its founding. Centuries later, these two things continue to play a major role in creating a sustainable campus. On the Sustainable Carolina podcast, we talk with Tar Heels about the intertwined nature of sustainability. I'm Abigail Brewer, Communications and Engagement Specialist for Sustainable Carolina. This week, we're talking with David Gorlick, a postdoctoral research associate in the UNC Center on Financial Risk and Environmental Systems, which has a cool acronym, COFIRES, and that's jointly housed in the UNC Institute for the Environment and the Department of Environmental Sciences and Engineering at UNC Gillings School of Global Public Health. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Can you believe we met 10 years ago on study abroad? Yeah, thanks for having me. I was really excited to talk and, and you're right, we are getting old. I was reminiscing about Ecuador and the Galapagos and remember you put together that montage video at the end of our trip. Yes, I immediately flew from the Galapagos home and then like a day later to my grandmother's birthday party in Ohio. So I remember making that video along the way there and it just made me so happy. I remember one particular day we went out for a break between classes and I was down by the water or something. I got spooked by a mother sea lion coming up and my my uh, sandals got stuck in the sand because the sand was kind of wet and two of her pups came and took them to play with them and took them way out into the water. And the whole class came out and watched me try and figure out how to distract the mother and get her up on the beach so she couldn't waddle fast enough to chase me while I swam out and got my sandals. It's just not something I do every day in North Carolina. Did you ever get your sandals back? I did. I think I might still have them, actually. I really do look back on that summer so fondly. My host parents just made me this amazing breakfast every morning, and then I would walk to class. There were two ways I could walk to class. I could either um, go behind a lot of the houses and Um, walk that way or I could go along the beach and walk that way. School wasn't too far from the house. I think it was probably about a mile. And as soon as we got there every morning, um, all of us greeted each other. It was a really cool group because I don't think a lot of us would have met if we hadn't have been on that trip together. Uh, I think that was something that was really special is there were so many different interests within our own group. Was there something that made you want to go on the trip? At that point in my life, I only knew the Galapagos as where Darwin formed his basis for the theory of evolution. And so in my mind as an aspiring environmentalist, it's a borderline mythical place that I always hoped one day I could visit and see for myself. And so as a freshman, I jumped at that chance that UNC gave us to study abroad. They make it very accessible through, uh, they have a lot of locations, a lot of opportunities from what I remember. And beyond those reasons, I didn't really know what I was getting into, and I appreciated the the excitement of that uncertainty and consider myself very lucky to have been able to spend the summer there on San Cristobal. I think I was similar to you in that I knew the Galapagos were like Darwin's islands. I remember, and I'm going to age myself here, I remember celebrating his 200th birthday in my high school um, AP biology class. But once I got to college, I took Steve Walsh's human interactions in the Galapagos Islands class. I remember we had this big research paper. It was kind of my first research paper of college. It was the first time that I had really gone to the library and done the kind of extensive research that that required. And at the end of it, I had read so many articles, books, and studies 
that I was just completely fascinated. And I did have some hesitation of, you know, whether I wanted to go to these islands, which are delicate. But I think at the end of the day, I saw how much interesting research that UNC was doing there and all of the great work that they were doing. And I just wanted to be a part of that. I do think one of my favorite memories from the trip that, you know, I think I'll remember forever was seeing the bioluminescence. Did you come to that? No, sadly, I missed that, but I would have loved to see it. To be honest, some of my favorite natural encounters were probably just the everyday curious sea lions. Um, For those who've never been, and I highly encourage you to go if you're able, they had a habit of wandering into cafes and lounging on benches around the marina. And so it was always kind of a treat to walk by them on my way to class in the morning. Um, And they weren't particularly graceful creatures, but something about the chorus of grunts and other bizarre noises they uh, they would make, um, I found entertaining, if nothing else. And and maybe not as peaceful as the pretty nights in the bioluminescence, but um, I liked it in my own way. I mean, yeah, those sea lions acted like they owned the place, which I guess they sort of did in a way. I do think the mentality of the locals was very refreshing there. They knew that, you know, the islands that they lived on had incredible wildlife on them, and they really did strive to protect it. But the bioluminescence was really cool, and I had remembered um, reading about it before I left, and people described it, and they would say, you know, it's kind of like the sky reflecting the water and vice versa. You know, the the sky's really um, dark there because there's not very much light pollution, and it kind of mimics what's happening in the water with the phytoplankton. There definitely aren't many better places to learn and and get our feet wet, literally, as scientists. And while we were there, I had this this incredible opportunity to work with UNC professor Jill Stewart on a really fascinating fieldwork project. Um, so if, if you remember, the island does have its own supply of fresh water. Um, but we couldn't drink it because there was contamination through the tap. Um, and since Jill was teaching a class on water microbiology and treatment, uh, we wanted to see if we could take advantage of the great lab resources that the Galapagos Science Center on the island had and see if we could figure out why that contamination was happening. So Billy Gerard and I, he was another student on the trip, uh, we went door to door across the island. We collected water samples from houses and businesses, and we actually analyzed them in the Galapagos Science Center lab for contaminants, the idea was we wanted to map these results and try and understand when and where contamination might be a problem. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me in a lot of ways. And it felt good to try and contribute meaningfully to the community that was housing us, you know, a decade ago. And and that was actually my first real research. And 10 years, three UNC degrees later, it's it's really crazy to to look back and see that was that was where it all started for me. Yes, I remember that work you did with Billy. Um, I was probably out at Zumba with my host mom while you were doing that, which that was always a fun thing. A lot of us did Zumba with our host parents. And that's so great that both of you were doing this type of community-based research and interacting with stakeholders so early on. Do you think any of that research helped you figure out what you wanted to do after graduation? Yeah, without a doubt. I, our, our Galapagos project, that was what first got me interested in water, I would say, and, and namely making sure it was accessible and safe uh, for everybody who needs it. And after we got back to UNC, I spent a lot of my remaining undergrad time researching racial disparities, actually, in water and sewer service in North Carolina. 
Um, and at the time, there was a big focus on that sort of work through UNC's Water Institute. And, and I was lucky enough to work with a PhD student and professor there and explore those water issues a little closer to home than the Galapagos. And it ended up being the basis of my undergrad thesis. Um, between that opportunity to work on North Carolina issues and our Galapagos project, I, I got a full view of what sort of impactful work I could do through water management research. And, and after undergrad was inspired to see how far I could go. And I'm glad you mentioned the Water Institute because they do such great work. We're actually lucky to have them represented on our Sustainability Council, which is the group that guides our work here at Sustainable Carolina. Was it always your intention to stay here in Chapel Hill for all of your degrees? Or is there something that drew you to Greg Sharakos's work? It was never my plan to stay in Chapel Hill this long. I, I grew up in North Carolina too. So every time I've graduated from UNC or high school or, or whatever, I always thought or said to like anybody who would listen, I'm going to get out of here. I'm never coming back. And, and I think that was just the spirit of, I don't know, rebellion. There was nothing, nothing really realistic about it. And 11 years later, I'm still here. So it must not be such a bad place. Uh, my grad school initial story is actually kind of funny. I, I was visiting another grad school and they were asking if I, you know, would like to work there, would like to, to study and, and, the professor on the last day, it was our last meeting before I was supposed to go home. And, and he said to me, hey, have you heard of this Greg Shiraklis? He He's at UNC. Have you, have you ever crossed paths with him? And, and I was like, I've never heard of the guy. And the next day I got back, I, I sent Greg an email. I was in his office a couple of days later. And then a week after that, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And it was by complete luck. Uh, so I, I give a lot of credit for my research path to uh, the kindness of strangers from faraway places just to turn me right back around to where I've been the whole time. It is funny how that works sometimes. But UNC Institute for the Environment and us here at Sustainable Carolina are big fans of interdisciplinary research. And with co-fires being housed within the Institute for the Environment and Gilling School of Global Public Health, I know that there's a lot of interdisciplinary research going on there. How do you feel this benefits you and other researchers' understanding of the financial losses caused by environmental events? I think the hallmark of good interdisciplinary work is being exposed to as many different perspectives as possible. And so by existing at that intersection of the Institute for the Environment and the Gilling School and collaborating with other groups like the Environmental Finance Center at the School of Government and the North Carolina Policy Collaboratory, I think... CoFIRES really benefits in terms of all those different schools of thought that we have to be thinking about. Um, we also spend a lot of time talking with non-academic partners. Um, for myself, that means water utilities. And that's an essential step as well to build successful applied research that our lab really focuses on and makes us able to, you know, it, it, it keeps things grounded, it keeps things accurate, especially when we're thinking about work that has day-to-day -day impacts for people or that we would like it to have. And in general, I think we've been successful because it's very hard to find research questions or societal issues that have environmental roots that aren't also financial in nature. And so learning all the ways that climate, weather, the environment, other factors can all lead to financial risk. It takes a lot of backgrounds of which we're fortunate to have many connections to at Carolina. I will say when I first read your paper, I got excited because it's 
based on Jordan Lake. And when we talk about water sustainability here on campus, I like to always put it in the context of, you know, we're not in a bubble. Everything that we're doing up here in Chapel Hill is affecting our water bodies downstream. And Jordan Lake, you know, is a reservoir for many communities here in the Triangle. In fact, our chief sustainability officer, Mike Peeler, he wears many different hats and he led the NC Policy Collaboratories Jordan Lake study. And they looked at how um, different water quality strategies could benefit the reservoir. Your study is different because it does look at how that supply can actually get into those surrounding communities. But you're both looking at the same water source, Jordan Lake, and the rapidly developing area around it, the Triangle. Right. Yeah. CoFires has been studying water resources in the Research Triangle for more than a decade, I think close to 15 years now, across many students. And our newest study, as you said, we focus on Jordan Lake for the exact reason that there's a lot of growth in the Triangle. And many cities and towns here have water stored in Jordan Lake that they can access but currently have very limited options to actually pipe it into Chapel Hill or Durham or Pittsburgh, for example. And so to remedy this, a group of utilities is currently working together to cooperate and build a new water treatment plant on Jordan Lake and then connect it to individual water systems to bring that treated water to you and I in our taps at home. That's tricky for a number of reasons. I think the first is that infrastructure is long living. So when a treatment plant gets built, you know, it's built to operate for decades, 50, 60, 70 years. And as you might expect, the price tag for something that long living is also quite high, you know, maybe eight or nine figure investment when it's all said and done. And third, regardless of whether water demand in the triangle continues to grow or not, or whether Jordan Lake continues to be a reliable source of water under climate change or other uncertainties, the utilities that build this plant are effectively making a permanent long-term investment without the assurance that everything will go according to plan. And that's unavoidable. You know, we can't predict the future. So when utilities build or fix infrastructure, they usually do it through debt financing. The same concept as paying off a mortgage on your house, except instead of a house, it's a $100 million water treatment plant. And that helps utilities ensure today's water supply is reliable while stretching the repayment of those large costs into the future. What that means is that if there's unexpected changes in demand growth or water availability, like an economic recession or a drought, a utility might have to increase water rates for customers to make sure they can cover their own costs. And if you add up all of this stuff, it makes for a very interesting, but also very complicated system to study and understand how we can reduce some of these risks for utilities and, and therefore for households across the triangle. I do feel like it's easy to take these resources like water, you turn on a faucet or electricity, you flip on a light switch. I do feel like they're easy to take for granted. It's hard to imagine the work that it takes to actually get the water from reservoir to the faucet. You've been working in this area for a while now. Is there anything that particularly surprised you about your findings? Definitely. In fact, my favorite outcome from this most recent work is, is one that we completely didn't expect. And that is related to how these utilities are actually going to cooperate. So as the new regional water treatment plant gets built on Jordan Lake, the utilities that plan to share it have to decide how to pay for it. And we compared whether having 
financing that's fixed or that doesn't change from year to year versus variable financing that can go up and down in response to how utility water demands change over time. We wanted to see whether these fixed or variable financing agreements could be more beneficial. So with a fixed agreement, those shares don't actually change in time. So each utility knows what it's going to have to pay year to year. When these shares are variable, each utility's annual payments are now more of a function of how the whole region is changing. And our intuition was that the variable financing would help benefit utilities more when they chose to cooperate because it would be more flexible and adaptable under all of these uncertainties that we've discussed. What we found was actually the opposite, that that was the fixed stable agreements that have performed the best. The fixed agreements may be more stable, more predictable for the water utilities in terms of cost, and therefore more stable, more predictable for households and for individual users. And that, so that helps everybody at the same time, because if the utility doesn't get surprised by changes in costs and revenues, then they do not have to turn around to customers and say, we didn't expect this bill to be so high this year, or in the next five years, we think we're actually going to be paying more than we expected. And so we have to raise your bill. So having predictability, one is a very good thing for utilities, but also having predictability and stability in terms of how they can operate such a complicated long-term project under uncertainty, that all benefits both the utility and the everyday customers who really are the ones who pay for it. And from what I understand, you've spent a decent amount of time connecting with these different water utilities. How do you think this work informs strategies for mitigating future risk? It's been an incredibly rewarding experience to work with the Triangle Water Utilities as, as a part of this study and many past years of collaboration. Our work would just not be possible, honestly, without their input. And, and they help us to make sure all of our models and the risk mitigation strategies that we propose are accurately representing reality and provide a product that is viable for them in the real world. And, and I think all those years of building trust and relationships with regional utilities, it's very important now that we have timely research results that can help them as they're deciding how to invest tens of millions of dollars in projects like this on Jordan Lake and in other water treatment plants or reservoirs or pipelines or, or other projects that they have. This is viable, not just for the utilities here as well, but utilities all across the country. These partnerships are wide ranging and used in a lot of places. So the triangle is not special in that case. Um, we just hope this work here is representative of what a lot of utilities across the country and across the world are going through. Well, this sounds like it's very applicable as we continue to experience a changing climate and increasing development. Well, David, you've laid some great groundwork, not just for water utilities here, but also for others around the country. And this is such a fitting time to have this conversation here at Sustainable Carolina because it's our water year. We recently published our water plan for the university, and that features our strategies for sustainable water use as well as strategies for working with our water utility, Awasa. Thank you for joining us today. The pleasure was all mine. I can't wait to tune in for the new podcast episodes too and, and get to hear what's going on across UNC in the water and sustainability areas. And thank you all for joining us today for the Sustainable Carolina podcast. 
Is there a sustainability topic that you want us to explore? Send us your ideas at sustainable at unc.edu and we'll have that linked in the podcast info.